Good morning and welcome back. I'm Rick Brown. Thank you for joining us on today's Seek First podcast, where we share biblical truth and engage in today's culture. Take a minute to subscribe to the Seek First podcast. Thanks, everybody. Stick around. I think you're going to be encouraged. Spending time with the Lord will be the best part of your day. So let's get ready. Grab your Bible, prepare your heart and mind. Let's go. We're going to be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tonight. So if you have your own Bible, you want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for our message, the Church of Southern California. I thought oftentimes that, you know, uh, as we think about the different books of the Bible, each one of them have their own personality. And in the great theological books like Romans and Ephesians, Paul the Apostle spends the first part just mapping out who you are and all that God has done for you, and then he turns to the practical. But in First and Second Californians, which First and Second Corinthians really lines up very nicely with because they're the most messed up church in the New Testament, Paul just jumps right in. Like, we're not, we're not spending chapters to fix this, we're just gonna jump in and help you guys out. Because the reality is that everything that's going on in Corinth, there's nothing new under the sun we experience today. And I jest about First and Second Californians, but it's really churches around the world that'll always struggle with these same things. Since there's nothing new under the sun for the last 2,000 years, all of the same issues are going on in people's lives and churches. And we're gonna look at tonight, we also are gonna have a baptism. We don't do sign-ups, so uh, we offer uh, opportunity if you've believed in Jesus and you want to follow the Lord in baptism, then this is your chance. And even if you didn't bring a change of clothes, since it is Southern California, you'll be fine. You can drip dry. It's all right. You can be baptized tonight. And uh, it's also to warn you at the beginning of the message, because if I take a wrong step, back I go, and I'll be baptizing myself head first into the baptismal. But the reality is, is that when we look at God's church, we look at God's heart, no matter how messed up his bride is, no matter how much the struggle, Jesus never disowns his bride. You see, in this passage of scripture, we're going to look at God's mess, God's method, and God's minister before we turn to baptism and people following the Lord in that public demonstration of following Jesus. But I don't know about you, but Life can just be messy. And unless you grew up somewhere isolated in a cottage with a white picket fence, um, life has probably been messy for you. You might come in here tonight on this Saturday night and you are personally messed up. And maybe you're here tonight and your marriage is messed up or your kids are messed up. Maybe things in your life relationally with your extended family are really messed up right now. But it also could be that you're coming from a church experience that's really messed up. I've been meeting people over the last couple of years that through messed up situations in their church, they've come here just to find a place to be healed and ministered to. Oftentimes people that are serving in various capacities and they're just worn out and they just wanna come sit without somebody pulling on them. See, life is messy, but the beauty is when God ministers to that mess, he brings a message out of the mess. Because for each one of us, whatever our story is and our testimony, because 
life is very, very undulating, meaning times of peace, times of struggle, times of adversity, times of prosperity. We are all over the place in the human experience. It's not static. It's not like a flat line, just we would be robots if that was the case. But we're emotional creatures, we're emotional beings. And if you showed up here tonight and you are a hot mess, you feel like a dumpster fire, I wanna welcome you because that's what we should rename the church. Hot mess. The first church of the hot mess. Because so often when people are invited to church, as soon as they hear the word church and they're unchurched, they think a bunch of self-righteous, judgmental people. It's just an image that the devil wants to spread about the church. It's not true. Well, some churches it's true. But the reality is we are a lot of broken people who have discovered a loving savior who has shown us grace and forgiveness and he's restored our life. And because of that, he never gives up on us. And I love the beauty of his love for us. And that's really one of the shocking truths as Paul the Apostle opens up to this church, commending them with God's love. But for the sake of our time tonight, we're gonna pick it up in verse 10 of chapter one. Please stand with me as we read through verse 17 to start our time as we look at the church of Southern California. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment for it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, that's Peter, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Father, we ask that your spirit would take your word and that you would minister to your people. Lord, we pray that your love, your grace, your kindness, your comfort would draw them close to your throne. Lord, we thank you that it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Lord, touch those hearts that are gonna be baptized tonight, have your hand upon them. And Lord, we just dedicate this time that you would open the heavens and pour out such a blessing that our hearts would be overflowing with your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, first we see Paul's, as he deals with the mess in verses 10 through 17, and he's pleading with them in the name of the Lord that they all are speaking the same thing, that there's no divisions, that they would be of the same mind. This means get on the same page, because right now there's a lot of conflict. You know, the Bible says how, be how beautiful it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. It's just, it's a beautiful picture. 
And we know that in our own relationships. When things are, when there's a discord between a married couple and you just feel like nothing's right. You ever get in that place in your conflict, in your marriage, and maybe you go out the door with a sharp word over your shoulder in the morning, you're distracted with her. It's like, this thing's nagging at you. You, you kind of get it, gotta get it right. Now, some people can stretch that out for months. I've done counseling for a long time. For me, it's a hard thing. I, I gotta get it figured out by, by that day. You know what I mean? And sometimes I'm repentant. Sometimes I'm like, this is what I meant. I'm trying to work it out because I want the unity and the harmony within the relationship restored quickly because it actually diminishes the quality of my daily life when I'm at odds. It also happens when I'm at odds with people. You ever been at odds with people and you're just laying awake at night thinking, going through the different conversation and scenarios in your mind, you gotta talk to them tomorrow morning and you're thinking, well, if I say it this way, no, 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 that's not gonna go good. And I say it this way, no, that's gonna, what if I, you know, you're going through all this stuff. Why are you working so hard in your mind? Because emotionally, you're actually wanting to restore something that's been broken, something that's been lost, something that's now out of sorts. The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. And so when you have a lot of Bible verses inside of you, you start working through the process. Okay, the Lord says this, and, and I should desire. The Bible says to uh, endeavor to keep the unity of the bond of peace. The word endeavor in other passages in the scripture is translated persecute. It means to run hard after something, but usually it's used in a negative context to run, being ran hard after to be harmed or hurt for your faith. But he says run after unity that way. Run after it aggressively and seek to restore it. And that's what Paul is doing, pleading with this group in this fractured, immature group of believers in the fellowship because they're beginning to take up these factions. And I mean, think about it. There's some pretty heavy hitters that have ministered there at Corinth. If you went there and Peter, the apostle, is going to do a six-week teaching here at the church and you just soaked up Peter. The one that walked on the water, not for long, but he did. Peter, who chopped off the guy's eye. Peter, who took one foot out of his mouth just to put the other foot in. Oh, we want to hear from Peter. Invariably, when I ask people, who is your favorite New Testament Bible character? They always tell me, Peter. Why? Because he messes up so much, he comforts us all. That's why we, we like him. Right? It's not be, I, I, I've only had one guy tell me Paul the Apostle. In all the years I've asked that question. Everybody, it's always Peter. Why? Because people love to see flawed individuals that can still follow Jesus. That's because that's you and me, right? We're flawed individuals and we're comforted. If I share with a congregation, I've been a preacher for 32 years. If I share with a congregation a glowing story of a heroic witness or some accomplishment of faith this week, you know what? The church just doesn't seem to be very excited about it. When I tell them how bad I mess up somehow, they just rave and rave. That's my favorite message. Do you love to see your pastor fall on their face? Yes, we do. We like that. Why? Because you want to know that I struggle just like you do, which I do. So this common ground, but then Apollos, who is the orator extraordinaire of the New Testament, he was an eloquent man mighty in the scriptures. He was amazing. Even when I hear Apollos described, I'm like, I want to go hear Apollos preach. So Peter's preaching. He's a fisherman. Apollos is an amazing order. The power of Paul the apostle. And then there are those who are super spiritual and they're not going to give their affection to any man. They're like, I only follow Jesus. I'm super spiritual. 
these guys come and go. Don't look at this as, oh, that's the group I'm in, like, okay, I'm just following. No, no, no. They're not even giving the other guys their due respect because in their immaturity, they think it's right just to tear down each and every preacher. I just follow Jesus. So in every faction, they have made a way, and Chloe is the tattletale. Chloe's household sent a message to Paul and said, they're just biting and devouring and chewing each other up. Paul, please fix things. It's a mess. You ever <laughs> coming home and having the kids fight and the, the wife's waiting at the door? Now, this is a challenge for men. You work hard all day, you come home, and the wife's had it with the kids. They've just, it's a mess. And she's like, tag, you're it, take over, go fix them. They've been, a, they've been at each other's throats. Please go bring harmony. And so Paul the Apostle, as a father, wants to speak to this issue, and they had made the issue over who got baptized by who. Now, this weekend, we will have this same struggle. You know that, right? Did Pastor Rick baptize me, or did Pastor Rob baptize me? Well, the one that baptized you is the person whose back was the least sore as an almost 60-year-old man. (laughs) Rob and I switch off back and forth, but I will never forget, I was a pastor at the age of 24. I was having my first baptism. It was a large, as a part on staff at a large church. The people were coming down into the water and here came this you know, eight-year-old son and his dad was on the edge. We were at this swimming pool and, and I baptized him and there was a m- multiple ministers in the water doing baptisms and his son ended up coming to me and after the baptism, his name was Larry, the father. He came up to me and Larry was kind of a, he had a really dry, sarcastic sense of humor. And so Larry came up to me and he said, you know, Rick, I was baptized by Pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, at the cove in the ocean. And I watched my son going in there to be baptized by you. And I had hoped for better things for my son than to be baptized by you. And I kept waiting for Larry's slice. He never broke a smile. He was not kidding. This was not a dry joke. He was dead serious. He was very disappointed that his son was baptized by a young upstart at the age of 24, starting his spiritual life. I have met people through the years who have talked about who baptized them with a big badge of honor. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong or the esteem of that. But the reality is, you, because the baptism is a special thing, but it's really between you and the Lord, and Paul wants to remove the personalities from it, as he says in verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Absolutely not. We're baptized in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this human immaturity, now it it now has a different competition on steroids for people that come to church. Now you know this, right? Because now people tell me consistently, and they have for the last 20 years, who they listen to. Ever since the internet came and they can listen to the best preachers all over the world every week, and they come and tell me at the door as they're leaving, I'm going through this series, Rick. You really should preach it this way. They have it, you know. So you're compared to everybody in the world of great preachers. Huge comparisons. And people kind of like, you know, it's close. We tolerate you. We come. 
but you know, really I get my spiritual food from, you just fill in the blank, from the great preachers. And I'm used to it over the years. I just smile and go, great, I'm glad you're being fed. Praise the Lord, he's God's servant. And because you really, I didn't die for anybody. I wasn't crucified. I don't need to be lifted up. But I'm very excited if you're growing in Christ and you found ministers that will minister to you because there is, there's preferences that we have in certain styles of, of ministry, isn't there? Uh, there's certain people that I enjoy listening to. But uh, I try not to get into the comparison game that can be very destructive for your own soul because you can set that person up on a pedestal. And I promise you, I promise you, they put their pants on one leg at a time. Don't care who they are. I've been on staff and been around people that are uh, quite well known. And, you know, you get too close, they have bad breath too. It just, that's the way it is. So not to elevate man to a degree that it causes problems within your own heart or within a congregational setting. And this is what Paul's trying to deal with here. And then he, he reminisces a bit and he thinks, you know, I did do a few baptisms when we started there with Crispus and Gaius and the household of Stephanus, but I can't remember anybody else because Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not to baptize. Now that might be troubling for some because you see it's a one-two punch, right? You preach the gospel, they get saved. People follow the Lord in public baptism that's the way it is. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people got saved. But did Peter baptize 3,000 people? No. There's 12 apostles. They're all, you know, they're all baptizing. At my fellowship where I was for the last 25 years, we would have this huge summer baptism. And we would have, uh, you know, thousands of people come to a big outdoor service and then I would have 10 to 12 ministers in the water that were being baptized. I would preach at the service, but they would all get baptized by the other ministers. And people would ask me, why don't you go into the water? Now, for the early years, I did it for many, many years. But I realized is that as your profile gets bigger and being on TV for 15 years, people have this, you know, my line, if there's 10 people baptizing in the water, the line for me would be 150 people. And the others, there's like, 10 in the line to go to them. But when I step out of the fray and people are just focusing on getting baptized and following the Lord, everything flattens out and evens out and they just go to the ministers in the water because that event at that moment becomes about them and Jesus and not about the preacher because it's not about the preacher. It's about you and Jesus in that moment. Now, when Peter, uh, Paul the apostle says this, he ends by saying, but to preach the gospel in verse 17 not with words, uh, wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul had just come from Athens where he met at the Areopagus with the Greek philosophers that did nothing but to talk about something new every single day, some philosophical thing. The Greeks are big philosophers. We have Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and all these, you know, maybe you're schooled in, uh, you know, Aristotelian debate back and forth, whatever it is. And he, he tried to meet them on that ground and it was a dismal failure. There was very little fruit. When he came to Corinth, he's like, forget that business. I'm going to declare to them what Jesus has done for them and the power of the Holy Spirit and let God do what he's going to do. I don't have to talk anybody into it because I do not want to make the cross of Christ of no effect. Meaning, if I try to talk you into it, let's, let's say here tonight, you're here and you are invited with a friend, you don't believe in Jesus. 
You've never surrendered your life to the Lord. And you go, well, I don't know. You know, the Bible's been mistranslated so many times. And, and I'm a skeptic. And you know, what about the guy over there in the jungle of Africa that's never heard? Everybody in the world so concerned about the guy in the jungle in Africa. Have you ever discovered that? I got to meet this guy sometime. I've heard about him forever. But the reality is they're always trying to deflect about something they don't believe. And it's all a smokescreen. And so when you look at him in the face and you go, wait, 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 let's just pause. Do this. The next time somebody just starts blowing smoke your way. Do this the next time. If I could prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, rose from the dead, and he is God's son to forgive you of your sins so that you can go to heaven. If I could convince you philosophically, scientifically, historically, would you surrender your life right now to Jesus? Inevitably, they will say, no. Why? Because all along is an issue of the heart and the will. They don't want to give up their sin, bottom line. So you got to deflect a lot and give a lot of smoke screens of deflecting. So you don't, I mean, so you sound somewhat intellectual, but it's really bogus. At your core, you do not want to give your will up for his will. And you know innately to follow Jesus, your life's got to change. So you just bring him to that point. And Paul the Apostle said, hey, I'm not going to bring the philosophy, though there is wisdom and a philosophical, philosophical way to approach things. I mean, that is a tool available. But Paul here is going to be very direct. Then he talks about his method. And he contrasts the ministry to the Jews and what they're looking for and the ministry to the Greeks and what they're looking for. He says in verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Have you discovered from unsaved people how foolish they think the Christian life is and how foolish you are for having a Bible and how foolish you are for reading it and how foolish you are for going to church on a Saturday night? Makes no sense to them. But for us who are saved... It's the power of God. Jesus is our savior. He is the hope of our life. He has changed our life. We went from darkness to light under the power of Satan to the power of God. He's changed us and therefore we are here. In verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Paul's challenging those who would step up. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And this is a mind-blowing thing. People through philosophical wisdom, through Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, trying to find their way in a wise way to God, could never find the, the door. They could never get through the door. But it was a block in their intellectualism, as I've met many people, as long as they have a degree, somehow they think their college degree has made them smarter than God, and they don't need God. So God said, you know what? We're going to turn this thing on its head. Since they could not find me through wisdom, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take this message of simply preaching a message, a fact, a spiritual set of facts declared to human hearts, and this is the way, he calls it, the foolishness of the message preached. Notice the message is not foolishness. It is the foolishness of the message preached, this exchange of a message through declaration as we are doing it here, even tonight. 
to those who believe. So he's not encouraging foolish preaching. He's declaring that I'm not trying to talk you into something here tonight. I'm going to declare to you the spiritual facts of what God has done for you. And that's a very different set, or I should say, a different approach to a human heart. Because it's really hard to argue with just a simple statement in the sense of, well, I guess you can argue with it, but that God loves you and Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead and you can be saved through him, right? That's a, that's a sp spiritual declaration of a fact. It doesn't matter if you're young or you're old or you're a bad sinner or you're a good sinner, you're an old sinner, you're a young sinner. Isn't it funny that every age and every uh, amount of sin accomplished in people's lives has an effect. I share with a 14-year-old, hey, Jesus loves you. You need to follow Jesus. You know what? I wanna sow my wild oats first and then come to Jesus. I wanna go work on a testimony. I haven't sinned enough yet for Jesus to save me. This is the way teenagers talk to me, right? And it was like, you know, I got, it, and in my own mind, I had that same rationale because I heard the gospel at the age of 13. And I'm like, I think I'll get saved at 13. I thought, like when I'm really old, like you're almost dead at 30. That was my mindset at 13. Like 30, you're just like, you might as well give your life to Jesus because there's nothing left after 30 from my mindset. But then you'll meet somebody and they're, they're 85. Yo, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. No, I've done my own thing all these years. They go through this whole process. And it's like, oh, the young says he wants to work on his testimony. The old says, oh, I can't change at this age. And then you have the good sinner who's actually the hardest to convince that they need Jesus because they, I'm a nice person. I pay my taxes. I give blood once a month at the Red Cross. And you're telling, you're calling me a sinner that I need Jesus' forgiveness? I think heaven is filled with nice people like me from my neighborhood. You're like, no, you're lost. You're really sweet. <laughs> but you're lost and still going to spend eternity without God unless you surrender your life to him. How dare you, young man? <laughs> They're the hardest in the world. Good people are the hardest. Like, give me a prostitute or a drug dealer. Are you a sinner? Oh, yeah, man. You bet. I'm in. Those are the people that you share Jesus with, and they go, I'm too bad. I'm too bad a sinner. I can't come to your church. The roof will fall in. They're going to be this great big crater. I said, if that's true, I know the people in this church. This, this would, place would look like Hiroshima went off because of the sin. I mean, some of you were very accomplished in your past lives in sin, but it's not true. Have you noticed though, there, there's this caveat of, as, you know, I was too bad, I'm too good, I'm too young, I'm too old. It's all this dodging here and there, and yet when the message is preached to them, is the power that touches their life. A girl's life who was changed, she went, she heard her church was gonna go down, downtown and, and witness on the street corner. And she wanted to go because she just gave her life to Jesus last week. But she only knew one verse, John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And she told the guy that was leading the trip for them, he, she said, I wanna go, I wanna tell people about Jesus' love, but this is all I know and I just got saved last week. He said, you know enough, just go share your experience, honey, it's gonna be great. So she's down there on the street corner and a skeptic, a hardened atheist, a scientist. He was the first person to come up to her. And she said, sir, can I tell you about God? And he thought, oh, I'm just going to shred this girl. 
And he had a long list of arguments as he attacked the Bible in this. But after every attack, she said, well, sir, I don't know anything about that. But I, re- I gave my life to Jesus last week and I've learned one verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. And so she went through and she told him the verse. He came up with some other things. And she said, sir, I don't know about that, for, but for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. She told him that three times. Now, the next week they went back down there on another Saturday and that guy came up to her and he says, I cannot get out of my head for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Because of the message declared and the spirit takes the word of God and he's like a surgeon and he puts the scalpel deep into your heart and you can't shake it. The word of God had found its way and had that impact. Now, the Jews request the sign in verse 22, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. So the Greeks want to philosophize their way to God, but the Greeks say, show us a miracle. I want to see a sign. And there are those who I've witnessed to through the years, like, show me a sign right now. If God's real, may a lightning bolt just strike me. See, God's not real. No, he just doesn't answer stupid prayers by strange people, but it's okay. They want to know a sign. But what does he say? Paul didn't go, though he did miracles, like Mark chapter two, and the apostles went out preaching the gospel and God worked with them with signs following. The supernatural is validation to the message. But Paul the apostle was not trying to bring signs and he was not trying to talk anybody into anything. He says in verse 24, excuse me, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. The Jews look at Jesus as a stumbling block, and the Greek says, that's nonsense. That's, that's ridiculous. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, you and I, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. I love these two phrases because Christ is the power of God inside of me to actually live a life for God for the first time in my life, but he is the wisdom of God to show me the understanding how to love him and serve him and how to love and serve other people. And he gives me this wisdom and then he empowers that wisdom. It's not dead wisdom, it's empowered wisdom. Now, if he gave me power with no wisdom, I would have a lot of power with nothing to do. But if he only gave me wisdom, I would have dead information and not know how to navigate. But he brings power and wisdom together, infused in the child of God to change your life, to change your marriage, to change your kids, to do a work in a community, to change that community. In verse 25, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Isn't that true? First of all, God has no foolishness and he has no weakness. He's all-knowing and he's also all-powerful. But Paul uses these words to think about it. I mean, just think, when a person is shaking his fist at God with his this three pounds of gray matter of brain, like he's smart, like he's smarter than God, like he's stronger than God. When I get to heaven, I got some questions for God. So really, I, I hope I am there. That is gonna be like the greatest moment in all my eternity to have you ask God your questions. When you come before God, you puny little being, before the awesome creator of the heavens, and in that moment, like anybody else that even experienced an angel were absolutely speechless, fell down like they were dead because of the glory and the majesty and the awesomeness of it. But you small puny little human, oh, got some questions for God. And Paul says, you know what? If God was foolish, his foolishness would be smarter than you, dimwit. 
And if God was weak, which he's not, he would be stronger than you. Because it's a, a funny thing, the hubris, the arrogance, the pride of the human heart. How big they think they are, how puffed they are. We had, this great, we had this great big youth pastor. He was like 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, he weighed 280. I mean, he was, he was a monster. He was a house. And he needed his own zip code. And he, he was in this youth prison where our church was. And he went in there to minister uh, weekly at this youth prison. And so there's a guy. You know, there's tough guys in there. So there's a guy in the front row. He's like 5'8". Maybe he's 150 pounds. And maybe on the street he's a tough guy. And uh, you put enough weapons in his hand, maybe. And he's getting all fired up because he's really angry about the message of Jesus and his love. And he's just, he's glaring at him and he's acting like, you know, he's just going to come off his seat. <laughs> and Justin was our youth guy. He was like, he's 280. And he looks down at him and he goes, and Justin, it's really funny. He's a really big guy with a, a, a really small voice, like kind of a, you know, a high voice. And he looked at him and he goes, what are you going to do, buttercup? He looks at the guy in the front row. It's like, what are you going to do? You could come off the chair, take your best shot. But it's almost like, you know, my weakness on my worst day, I could crush you like a bug. I don't know what you're thinking. And that's in a human dimension in comparison, not human to God. And yet God in his weakness, God in his foolishness is stronger and smarter than the guy with the PhDs who works full time to deny that he exists. But you know, 70 or 80 years is really short and he's gonna be standing before his throne, speechless. Now the scriptures declare that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Even unbelievers, when they get there, they will bow and they will declare, yes, Jesus is the Lord. He's not their Lord. They're not going to heaven, but they will bow. And they will confess. And all of their bluster, all of their arrogance, all of their blowhard wind will be snuffed out and silenced as they stand before God. Paul wraps it up in this portion as we look at God's minister because it's really encouraging for all of us. Well, we see how amazing God is, but what kind of people does God use for you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame those things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence." But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So the Lord has an interesting way. First of all, he looks at a mess, and he has an interesting method just declaring spiritual truth without trying to philosophize necessarily and talk people into it. Lest he empty the cross of its power, I'm just going to simply declare to you what Jesus has done for you and how he loves you and let God do whatever he's going to do with that. But here he says, but I also choose people 
that are, you know, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble, the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. That means he picks very normal, average people. Now, in our strategy to how to reach the world for Jesus, we would think, oh, if this movie star could get saved, he would have such influence. If this athlete would get saved, he would have such influence. If this billionaire would get saved, he would have such influence. And we're always strategically in our mind thinking, if we could only have the who's who do God's work, wow, then the church would be cool and hip and everybody would be, want to be a part of it. Guy goes, nah, I'm not into that plan. Because twice he says here, no flesh is going to glory in my presence because the person that's the big dog on the street if he had this effect, everybody would say it was because of him. But when God picks average, ordinary guys like me and you to do the job, we go, wow, we know that's God, praise God. Because if God can him use her, God can use him, then obviously God can use anybody because I know them. <laughs> it's a very freeing thing because you see the reality is, is that for you and me, We don't have to be something special for God to use us because to God, we are special. Now the world might not think, have any merit or uh, respect for us, but God can bring that. All the way through the Bible, the Lord picks these guys that are on the, on the fringe to do amazing things. Gideon is hiding from the Midianites in a wine press. Now, a wine press is designed to crush grapes, but he's in there threshing grain. Now, grain should be threshed up on a hill where there's a breeze to take away the chaff, but he's down in this place where there's no breeze. He's trying to get enough bread for his you know, family, so to speak. He's threshing grain. And the angel shows up and says, hey, mighty man of valor. He's like, I, th I think you got the wrong guy. That's not me. He said, I, I'm the least in my, my clan. I'm the least in my family. I, I, I'm in the least of my tribe. And you're an angel of the Lord. Heaven gave you the wrong address. Don't come ask me. I'm nobody. The angel says, you are to God. And he uses Gideon in the most amazing way. And he uses this principle all the way through the Gideon story. First with the leader, Gideon, who's from his own estimate is like nobody. Like, you should choose somebody else. And how often I've thought that in ministry. I see some people that are around me really gifted. I'm like, Lord, just, I'll just move. They just can do it, right? I'm just, I'm going to step back and let somebody that actually has skills and gifts do this. And the Lord's like, no, because when I use you, it's kind of comical. Everybody goes, wow, that was God, Right? You're my poster child for, you know, if I can do this through Rick, I can do it through anybody. And you, you want to take that away? Okay. But Gideon in his story, he, he finally gathers, he, he gets the courage, they blow the trumpet, 22,000 people show up. Now, we find out there's 140,000 Midianites. So 22,000 to 140, that's not good odds, right? It's not good odds. And then the Lord says, hey, Gideon, tell everybody that's afraid to go home. Hey, anybody, he's thinking to himself, these are Israelites, these are men. Nobody's going to be afraid. Hey, everybody that's afraid, go home. <laughs> now, there was 32,000 that showed up, excuse me, not 22,000, 32,000. <laughs> so 22,000 go home. Only 10,000 are left. 22,000 were afraid. They went home to mama. 
then he goes, yeah, you know, you got too many. 10,000, 114,000, odds, you know, uh, 1 to 14. Still, no, if you win with 10,000, you guys will pump, push out your chest and say, we did it. No, I want the glory in this battle. So go down to the water and everybody that brings the water to their mouth and they lick it like a dog, I want those guys. I want the dog lappers. I want the unusual, odd people. The people that just put their face in the water, I don't want them. No, no, don't want them. So 300 out of the 10,000, he goes, yeah, that's the ones. We're going to win this battle with the dog lappers. And they had an amazing victory. And who got all the glory? God did. When God uses your life to lead somebody to Christ, or he uses your life to accomplish something wonderful and beautiful, it's really tempting to touch the glory. But what's he say here? Hugh glories, let him glory in the Lord. It's all right. If God uses your life and people talk to you about it, you go, man, God did an amazing thing. I was just happy to be a part of it because you're a passive participant in the one that gets the glory. Billy Graham in his wonderful North Carolina accent, he's like, don't touch the gold, the girls, or the glory. For the minister, stay away from getting yourself into money troubles, girl troubles, but especially don't touch God's glory like you are the one that accomplished this. You leave God's glory alone. He will share his glory with no man. So he picks people that are base, foolish, weak, helpless. And I have watched this for all these years. God, you know, pastor conferences. When I, when I first went to my first Calvary Chapel pastor's conference, back in the day, now there's like 1,800 Calvary chapels. But back in the day, when I went to pastor's conferences, there wasn't nearly that many in 1989, my first one that I went to. And you go there and you've heard these guys on the radio and you think they're like, in, in the spiritual world, they're like rock stars, they're amazing. And you go there and you wanna you know, talk to this one and that. But then you hang out with them and you get to know them. And you kind of step back and go, oh snap, God really can use anybody. These people are like <laughs> ERG. You know what ERG stands for? Extra grace required. They're like ERG, extra grace required. It's like the, the island of misfit toys. All these guys, that, the very eclectic, odd people that God seems to use, chooses to use so that he can get all the glory. Because when God does it, God must smile in heaven because he's receiving all the glory. Paul the Apostle dives right into this first chapter. He starts to deal with the mess of the division. He talks about his method, which is simply declaring the spiritual truth and reality without the need to talk anybody into it or to be doing signs and wonders, though those signs may follow as he preaches. But then he encourages all of us, you know what? God's gonna use every single one of us. I don't care who you are or what you're doing. When you make yourself available to God and you go, God, I want to be useful for you. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll say whatever you want me to say. I'll serve however you encourage me. I prayed that as a young Christian, and I was pretty young in my faith, and I, I just said, Lord, I, I, I'm a construction worker. I really felt like I don't have any skills, but I, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And uh, I thought it was a pretty cool prayer for my young faith. I'm like, I'll just, you know, do, go wherever you want me to and do whatever. And the Lord spoke to my heart. 
There's still small voices. I, I want you to go minister at your grandparents' little Baptist church. And that terrified me. It kind of freaked me out. And I'm like, well, I prayed the prayer. I wasn't sure about, like, actually doing something. <laughs> and so I went, and they had an interim pastor, and I knocked on his house because he wasn't at the church. and said, hey, I, I, I just want, the Lord laid on my heart, if there's ever a time that I can, I guess, share my testimony, or is there some need at the church that I can help with, and I'm just here making myself available. And he was a very elderly guy as the interim preacher. He's about, you know, almost 80 years old. And he goes, yes, young man. He took down my name and phone number. And I didn't hear anything for about three months. And then I get a call from the new minister. And he goes, hey, the former pastor said this. And we have this youth conference. And I want you to come share your testimony with 100 kids from across the state. I was totally terrified. Because I'm like, now it's, it's cool to say nice prayers and say I said them and then go on your merry way. It's another thing when the Lord says, now go do it. And, and I did it, and, and people got saved. These teenagers got saved. It's the first time I ever spoke in front of people about my faith. See, it doesn't matter who we are. Through all that process, God got the glory. And he wants to use you so that he can get the glory. And when we hold back our love and service from being ordinary people, we're robbing him of his glory. Because... He deserves the glory for changing my life. Now we're going to turn, the worship team's going to come up, and we're going to worship, and we don't know if there's anybody, anybody here getting baptized tonight? Raise your hand if you're going to get baptized. All right. Got, oh, got, got a few. Right on. Okay. Worship team's going to come. They're going to start uh, uh, worshiping and singing, and I'm going to go over here and take my shoes off on the side stage. You're going to go right up this ramp and come up there, and you'll be coming down here, and we'll pray for you. And so just make your way there. And if you have to change, go to the bathroom real quick and uh, change your clothes. And uh, try not to change right here and get naked in front of everybody. But, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're already uh, got your shorts on, whatever you're going to do, head right over here and let's worship the Lord. Let's pray the Lord prepares our heart. Father, we thank you for your incredible grace. Lord, we thank you for your incredible love that touches each one of us in such a way that in our lost, empty lonely, broken hearts. You're the only remedy, Lord. You're the only answer. You are truly our Redeemer. Lord, that you would rescue us and then use us. Lord, I pray for those hearts that are here and maybe they didn't plan on getting baptized tonight, but Jesus, you've you touched their hearts and you're speaking to them right now, like tonight's the night for them. Lord, maybe they've been following you for years, but they've never just taken that step of public baptism. Lord, I pray that you would just draw them to yourself right now, that they would follow you and identify with your death, burial, and resurrection. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, make your way over here. And I want to encourage anybody, even if you didn't plan on getting baptized, this is an opportunity for you to do so. I've seen the light in the darkness. I want hope for the hopeless and rest for the weary mind. And you've got truth for the taking, but my heart won't be shaken if today be the day.
that I die. Whoa, oh, whoa, oh, whoa, oh, whoa, oh. Now I worry about tomorrow or fear in times of trouble. I keep my heart seeking you. Oh, I will keep my heart seeking you. Whoa, oh, 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 when that day draws near, when my darkest fear, I will keep my heart seeking you, and when your I will keep my heart seeking